the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Popular expectations about the Messiah of ancient Israel ranged from the mystical to the militaristic. Some envisioned that he would be like an ethereal prophet whose teaching on the Torah would move all wayward hearts back to piety under the law, that God's peace would return to the promised land. Others imagined that the Messiah would be a fierce warrior king of old. Saul would have his thousands and David his ten thousands, but Messiah would have his millions. This vision of, was especially popular in the age of the Roman occupation. The so-called Roman peace under Caesar Augustus was more like a euphemism masking a brutal imperial expansion. And in their minds, only a warrior could oust a warlike people. Prophet or punisher, both visions made a kind of sense. And regardless of which of these stories you chose, there was no shortage of cobbled together theology or scriptural proof texting by a range of so-called scholars or would-be prophets to convince you of the rightness of your story and the heresy of the other person's story. One of the consistent threads that connects all four Gospels, though, is the way that Jesus upsets these Messiah myths. Jesus often seems de deliberately to do the opposite of what people expect him to do. When people call for a miracle, he offers instead hard admonitions. But where there is near despair, he raises the dead to life. When his following is at its peak numbers, he gives a lesson so difficult that thousands walk away immediately. Jesus continually shows himself to his disciples not to be the kind of savior for whom they were told to look. And in few other places does this prove more true than in the days leading up to his passion in Jerusalem. Shortly before the event of our gospel lesson, Jesus had begun to teach his disciples that his mission was to suffer, and that through that suffering he would receive his kingdom. The same Peter who on the road to Jerusalem had just confessed that he believed Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, then rebukes him at this teaching and informs Jesus that he cannot be allowed to do this. Our Lord's response to him, get behind me. You are not on the side of God, but of men. The center of the transfiguration that we observe today is a conversation about this question. How can the anointed son of God, the Messiah, be made to endure humiliation and death? It is a question that is made necessary by the inadequacies of the Messiah myths floating around. Messiah can't die. How can he save us if he is dead? It is in the perplexity of this question that our Lord leaves, leads Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray. As he prays, Jesus is revealed by the Father in his glory. Moses and Elijah are revealed, 
listening attentively to him as he discusses that very thing, his impending passion, the very thing that spurred Peter's anxious refusal and Jesus' rebuke. Peter interrupts again. But rather than trying to discourage Jesus, this time he tries to delay him. Let's build a place for us to stay. Let's stay right here. This is perfect. This is how things need to be. Peter attempts again to sidestep what Jesus has now twice revealed must be so. This elicits the command of God the Father, whose voice rings out, Listen to him. We know from the rest of the gospel that Peter continues to struggle with listening. When he vows to Jesus at their entrance to Jerusalem that he'll follow him all the way to the glorious end, Jesus tells him, actually, you'll deny me three times. Peter still misapprehends the work that they are there to do and what following Jesus will really mean. That misunderstanding manifests again in Peter's brash gesture of loyalty when he attempts yet again to prevent Jesus' way to the cross by drawing swords in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus reminds Peter a third time, this cup that is set before me, shall I not drink it? Peter is then made to face what he's been desperately avoiding and discovers soon after what Jesus meant all along and what that truth could mean for himself when he is threatened by accusation in the court of the high priest, the courtyard of the high priest, and there denies even knowing Jesus, calling him that man. In the bitterness of that moment, Peter realizes how false expectations produced a willingness to refuse Jesus and refuse what Jesus kept trying to tell him. That the error that began in a place in the heart has now flowered into the betrayal of a friendship. But just as the Lord comes to Peter on the mountaintop and touches him, and tells him not to be afraid, so after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter the denier, and restores him as Peter the disciple. But in this restoration is a reminder once more of what Peter seems to continually wish to forget. The cross is inevitable. Quote, most assuredly I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and another will carry you where you do not wish. The way of Jesus is the way of every disciple. The cross is unavoidable. The epistle lesson gives us the end of the story as a letter written by St. Peter at the end of his ministry and at the very near end of his life. Quote, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tent, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
through time and prayer and obedience. St. Peter has learned at last to say amen, to at last to the thing that once seemed so impossible, that the cross is the way and path to glory. For St. Peter, the vision of Christ crucified has finally become one with the vision of Christ glorified. The truth of Christ is better than all our theories about Christ. The transfiguration as a feast day is a reminder that a reminder to us that Jesus is always more than we imagine him to be. And that our vocation as Christians is to follow him not as we know him or want to know him, but as he knows himself to be. Christ will not be co-opted. He does not reveal himself to propel our ambitions or fantasies about how things ought to be. He comes to save us as he knows we need to be saved. It is a grace to be rescued from our inferior visions about Jesus and God and salvation because we are willing to settle for so much less than God wishes to give us. We shy away from the real cost of God's best and highest good. It hurts to think of Christ's sacrifice as necessary for our redemption. And it hurts to think that our discipleship costs not less than everything. The transfiguration reminds us that reality is so much more gracious than fantasy. That error is in the end a kind of cruelty. And that diligence to seek the truth is always the fruit of constant practice and labor. We're invited to remember that the person at the heart of the Christian life is always right in front of us in a kind of meek hiddenness, ready to meet and touch and comfort and raise up. But that person is always at the very end of all things, exalted beyond the furthest reach of thought, always ready to challenge us, to spur us, and to call us onward and beyond the thing we're willing to settle for. It is for us to constantly surrender the idols of our ideas about Jesus, praying instead to receive him as he is, in the fullness of who he is. It is why we're here. For the same Lord who meets us in the humility of Eucharist tonight is the same Lord at whose feet we will, like Peter, fall when we behold him as eyewitnesses of his majesty. We cannot be saved by a story. We can only be saved by this person. As Jesus said to Peter, follow me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.